Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very excited today, as you can hear by the sound of my voice. Today we have with us Robin Osborne. He is a professor of ancient history at the University of Cambridge, and he has a particular focus on ancient Greek history and archaeology. He has published many, 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 many books and many, 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 many articles. So welcome, Robin. How are you today? I'm well, thank you very much. Very good to talk to you. I, I'm really sorry. I'm fangirling and I'm not even going to hide it. It's because um, we, we've used Robin's books at university and we always used to argue amongst each other, you know, for a specific topic. And my, I'm going to bring her up. My best friend, Linda, who is an ancient historian, would always say, well, Robin Osborne says this. So therefore, it is correct. So that was always our argument. Not an argument I would go with. <laughs> so today, so I basically what I did, um, I contacted Robin. I said, listen, can you come do a podcast with us? And he kindly obviously agreed because he's here. And I went trolling through because we could we could have done something like ancient Greek history. But no, I went through his articles and I found a very, very interesting article, which is about the image of homosexuality. And I thought this would be a really great topic for us to talk about today. First of all, can you tell our listeners the difference between black figure and red figure pottery? Yeah, let me put this in a bit of context. So just after 800 BC, Greeks started drawing figures and not just um, abstract decoration upon their pots. And you get figurative scenes from then on Greek pottery through to about 300 BC. And um, during that period, various different techniques were used and various different styles of imagery were adopted. And so archaeologists talk about these by a series of shorthands. So essentially, they talk about uh, pottery from the 8th century BC as geometric pottery. Uh, pottery from the 7th century BC tends to be uh, called by its regional name. So there's Proto-Attic and Proto-Corinthian pottery and Corinthian pottery. Pottery from the 6th and 5th centuries BC is dominated by pots made in Athens. In the 6th century, you get black figures against a terracotta background. And in the 5th century, you get terracotta coloured figures against a black background. I need to say, when you're walking through any museum, British Museum, Ashmolean, I've got to say I much, much prefer the red figure because for me, I don't know what it is, I find them to have more detail rather than black figure, but then I may be mistaken and you might completely um, 
tell me that I'm wrong here. No, I think that's, that's broadly right. Uh, what happens is that the blackness flattens the figures into sort of silhouettes. So black figure is quite good at showing actions. The limbs of figures show up very well against the, the red background and so on. But it is hopeless for showing details within the body, except that it can do things like the decoration on textiles quite successfully by showing um, pattern. Uh, but basically, red figures, it's much easier to see the, uh, the nature of the body. You get an impression that the body might actually be a rounded figure, um, whereas in black, you get these, as I say, just the flat silhouettes. So we're going to talk about homosexual images today. I'm curious, do, do they span the whole ancient Greek period or do you find them in some or how does that, how does that look? So one of the interesting things about the imagery on Greek pottery all the way through from just after 800 down into the fourth century is that uh, these figurative scenes have some relationship to life. But which scenes are popular in different periods varies a lot. The 8th century, there are a surprising number of scenes of ships, for instance. Uh, from the 5th century, when you know the Athenians had an enormous navy and were always engaged in sea battles, we have more or less no um, pictures that show ships at all in red figure. And scenes of explicit uh, sexual content are not really found until the end of the 7th century. Um, they're then um, found to some extent in Athenian black figure, um, but in a relatively narrow range. And then in the early part of the 5th century, you get quite a wide range of very explicit sexual scenes, um, and then they disappear. Uh, and from about 460 onwards, you hardly find any. Um, so there is, a, there is very much a periodicity to the representation of sexually explicit scenes, including scenes of male-male um, desire. Is there a reason for that? Uh, wouldn't we love to know? Uh, there clearly <laughs> is a reason for that. And uh, it does correlate with various other changes. So there's a there's a more general change from a late 6th century, early 5th century dominance of scenes of action, often scenes that are rather competitive, to a mid and late 5th century pattern where the scenes that we find stress contemplation, the viewer is much more often drawn into what's in the figure's head rather than what the figure is doing. Uh, and this popularity and then unpopularity of sexually explicit material uh, does more or less fit into that broader pattern. What lies behind that broader pattern? Uh, that's a very much more difficult uh, question to answer. So how does it compare? So you've got homosexual images and you have heterosexual images. Obviously, we see a lot of heterosexual images more than, than homosexual. Do we, know, do we know why this is as well? Well, uh, it depends what counts for you as a homosexual image and what counts as a heterosexual image. Greek pots are famous for their sexually explicit scenes, uh, but actually it's only a very small minority of pots that have sexually explicit scenes on them. Uh, 
particularly with regards to homosexuality, it's very hard to know where you draw the boundary. So there are scenes where uh, figures are shown explicitly sexually excited, um, and those are clearly in some sense sexually explicit. Um, but you also get quite a lot of scenes where there are older men and younger boys, and there is clearly something going on in terms of affective relationship, but uh, it isn't necessarily the case that there's any explicit sexuality. And it's a bit similar with heterosexual scenes, where in very much the same sort of way, there are obviously an enormous number of scenes which have both women and men in. Uh, some of those scenes are very explicitly sexual. There are scenes of penetration and so on. Um, but other scenes are uh, scenes of courtship or scenes of men eyeing up women. You know, where do you draw the boundary between what is sexual and what isn't sexual? Uh, and how you count the numbers will depend exactly on how you draw the boundaries. If I'm not mistaken, with the homosexual images, there's no actual penetration unlike in heterosexual images. So uh, there are a very small number of scenes which do show anal penetration. And by, by very small, I mean perhaps two, <laughs> oh, wow. um, uh, and we have tens of thousands of pots, and we have, uh, depending on how you uh, define it, we probably have uh, more than a hundred scenes which are sexually explicit in one way or another. Um, uh, so this is a tiny, tiny number. Uh, we should also note that uh, Greek pot painters, Athenian pot painters, don't only paint men and women, they also paint an imaginary creature known as the satyr. And satyrs are like men, except they have horse's ears, they have a horse's tail, sometimes they have, sometimes they have horse's legs. Now, satyrs never existed, and Greek artists knew they didn't exist, they weren't drawing these from life, but they are, love painting them, and they love painting them because they enable them to have fantasies about men who have lost their inhibitions because they're part animal. And so satyrs are very regularly shown in a state of sexual excitement, and they're also shown doing things sexually, uh, notably bestiality, uh, which men are never shown doing. So what is shown depends upon whether you count satyrs in with men or whether you don't count satyrs in with men. It's a bit similar to the figure that they found in Pompeii with the fawn having sex with, uh, with the lady, isn't it? In some sense, that's right, yeah. Because at the moment you said that, that's the first image that popped into my head. I'm thinking, yeah, I can see that, because it was also happening in the Roman period as well. I'm sorry for bringing up Romans in a, in a Greek podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, that, that's entirely right. And again, you know, the, the Pompeii material is actually quite useful uh, in allowing us to see that certain sorts of images were appropriate in some sorts of context and not in others. So the, the very famous scene of sexually explicit scenes which show various sexual positions actually comes from a bath building and those pictures were used as ways of identifying where you'd left your clothes. So they're painted above a shelf 
and clearly when you went into the baths you left your clothes on this shelf and then you presumably told your slave uh, where to find the clothes by telling him what the sexual position was you'd left the clothes by. Can I just say I love the openness of this you know for example and I'm sorry for using because we are we're talking about sex so for example you've left it under the the, the anal sex line you know that's that's where my clothing is uh, just find out how open it is it's just really interesting yeah yeah no I think that's true but I think there's also a humorous that I mean it's deliberately yeah. meant to make you slightly embarrassed when you say you know um uh, that it was you know it's, it's oral sex today <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk a bit, because I, I want to know a bit more about this, which is, um, if I'm correct, in pederastic courtship? Is that, have I mentioned that correctly? That's, that's the term that scholars use, yes. So, and the reason for this is that regularly uh, when you get to scenes where there's clearly sexual attraction between the figures, one of them will be bearded and therefore older, and one will be beardless and, and therefore younger. That's not invariable but it's normal. Uh, and so the younger, the younger figures, who are sometimes you know, more or less as tall as, as the older figures, so these aren't necessarily small, though they are sometimes small um, boys, uh, of sort of indeterminate age, but pre-beard, um, are being courted by older men. So there's an age difference being shown. Is this, quite, is this very Greek specific? Uh, yes, it's pretty Greek specific, I think. Were any of these pots found beyond the scope of Greece, ancient Greece itself? Athenian pottery gets sold all across the central Mediterranean. Uh, an enormously large percentage of the best preserved pots actually were not found in Athens or in Greece, but were found in Italy. Uh, part of the reason for that is that the nature of Etruscan tombs means that these pots survived intact. Um, within tombs in, in Athens, the range of pots that are put into tombs is actually much narrower. They use only put, only put small vessels into tombs, not much larger vessels, uh, and they regularly haven't survived as well. Scholars have debated a lot how important this pattern is. How far were these pots that ended up in, in Italy being put into tombs by the Etruscans? How far were they showing things because the Etruscans had ordered a pot with that scene upon it? Well, uh, we don't know. There are some cases where that looks very, very plausible. Um, but there are many cases where it doesn't look plausible at all, uh, where the scene makes reference very specifically to what's happening in Athens, um, and yet nevertheless has ended up in, in Italian graves. And we do find sexually explicit scenes, for instance, even on the Athenian Acropolis, uh, where we find some dedicatory plaques uh, that show uh, intercourse. Uh, and that suggests that there weren't any more qualms in Athens about sexually explicit scenes than there evidently were in the Troy. I'm going to bring up symposiums only because I know I can hear people screaming, you need to talk about symposiums. And I think we should do some myth busting in here. So I'm going to throw in um, a couple of things. So, for example, a lot of people believe 
And when you talk about a symposium, we are talking about a sex party. So a group of men get together and they have a couple of maybe prostitutes or some, 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 some women, and they have this massive orgy, drinking wine, you know, from the cups with the, sex, um, with the sexually explicit uh, pictures. And that's how a symposium was. Please tell us the truth behind this. Okay, so probably the term symposium covers a very, very wide range of activity. So drinking together happens in the Greek world in a number of different circumstances. Uh, we do know that a lot of houses are built with a particular room that is uh, reserved for drinking parties with couches around uh, the edge of the room uh, on which people would recline to drink. But we also find rooms like that in sanctuaries, including sanctuaries where the main rituals that go on involve women, not men, um, uh, and where uh, what we're seeing is what happens after a sacrifice. So you sacrifice, uh, that produces a dead animal, which you then cook and you eat, and then you drink. Um, and so there are um, sanctuaries in which there will be symposia, there are private houses in which there will be symposia. It looks as if you could buy a set of pottery to drink from, which would be full of sexually explicit or suggestive scenes. You could buy a set of pottery which is devoted to a, sort of a high-minded mythology. Uh, depending on what sort of party you wanted, you presumably used the sort of pottery and the sorts of scenes on your pots that you wanted to suggest a form of behaviour to uh, your guests. So there probably were some rumbustious parties that ended up, if not as orgies, at least with uh, people in a state of readiness for sexual activity. And there will have been other parties that were much more sedate, as it were, uh, and where the discussion during the party might never have touched on issues of sexuality at all. So what kind of potteries did the pottery? So what kind of pots and cups did they use in these symposiums? So the the basic um, drinking cup used in a classical Greek symposium, so in the fifth century and it's similar in the sixth century, is a very shallow vessel, um, but quite large. They vary in size, but perhaps the smallest are six or seven inches in diameter. The largest can be um, more than a foot in diameter, uh, which is a, a, a gently curving bowl uh, with a central foot underneath and two handles at the side. You hold it generally not by the handles, but by the foot, um, and you drink from this. And it requires quite a lot of skill to drink, particularly from the larger examples, uh, because the um, length of rim across which the wine is going to flow is going to be very large unless you're very, very gentle with how you hold it. And part of the fun of the symposium is almost certainly seeing people lose it in the course of the evening as they lose their sensitivity as they get more intoxicated and so find it harder and harder to drink without making a mess of themselves. I want to know there is something you've missed in here that I want our listeners to hear. What kind of images could you find at the bottom of these cups? 
All sorts of things is the answer. So regularly these cups have a, a round tondo, as, as scholars tend to call it, uh, which has figurative decoration in it. Some of these are some of the most famous scenes of uh, Greek pottery. So if you know a scene of Achilles bandaging Patroclus, that comes from the bottom of a cup like this. And that's an indication that you might have a mythological scene, albeit there is a debate in antiquity as to whether Achilles and Patroclus were lovers. So how far the tenderness of Achilles nursing in that example is also uh, to do with uh, an uh, homoerotic uh, bond between the two. Uh, no doubt different uh, users of that pot would have taken different views. But you also get uh, scenes at the centre which relate directly to drinking and famously some of them relate to people who have had too much to drink. So as you finished your wine, ancient wine mixed with water is slightly cloudy, so you probably wouldn't see very well through it. As you finished your wine, what might be revealed to you is a man vomiting into a bowl. <laughs> uh, a suggestion that perhaps you might have had too much or perhaps you shouldn't refill this pot just now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think we'll go, we'll go back to, these, to the homosexual images. Um, so there is an image of bending knees. Now, is this something innocent? and non-sexual or completely opposite and it is a sexual image so what you what you get quite often in these scenes which have a younger figure and an older figure is you get the the older figure reducing himself to more or less the height of the younger figure by bending the knees and uh, sometimes that's accompanied by gestures that um, can only be described as groping uh, the, the favourite way to grope is to feel for the downy chin of the young boy who is not yet developed a beard and to feel perhaps at the same time um, for the genitals of the young boy. Uh, art historians have sometimes called this the up and down gesture uh, and it's found on pots from both the 6th century black figure pots and uh, into the 5th century on, on red figure pots. So figures that, that are groping often also bend the knee in order to put themselves into the position to, to grope, or they just bend over. 
Um, in other occasions, the figure bends over for what can only really be called an embrace and virtually puts, the older figure puts his head on the shoulder of the younger figure. What that bending also regularly does on red figure pots is it opens up a more or less triangular space uh, with one side of the triangle uh, formed by the belly of the young boy and then the other two sides of the triangle formed by the upper part of the thighs of the older man and by the chest of the older man and often into that black triangle pokes the erect penis of the older man who is clearly showing off his sexual excitement absolutely making it clear as if it wasn't already that this scene is about sexual attraction so how does anal sex and thighs how do they interlink uh, we could start this story in various places, um, but I want to start it not with Athenian pottery, but with uh, Corinthian pottery. So towards the end of the 7th century BC, we begin to get a whole series of pictures of what have become known as padded dancers. Um, and these are figures who are clearly dancing, but whose buttocks are particularly enlarged and indeed look padded. And very often these dancers draw attention to their buttocks. Recent work done by other people, not by me, has pointed out that a small number of these scenes uh, make it clear that the reason for drawing attention to your buttocks is to draw the attention to them as a site of erotic attraction. Um, and there's a very clear allusion to anal penetration uh, in these scenes. So it looks as if these pots, which as I say, they start off as a Corinthian uh, development, you then find that more or less copied by Athenian artists on Attic pottery. Uh, it looks as if one of the earliest forms of sexually explicit imagery that we get on any Greek pottery is pottery drawing attention to the attractions of, uh, of the buttocks. Um, and uh, the assumption, I think, has to be that the attractions of the buttocks go very closely with uh, the attractions of anal penetration. In the literature, what we get is reference to thighs. Right? And when writers write about uh, the attractions of young men, they write about the attractions of young men's thighs. And uh, when they use a term uh, to refer to active sexual um, behaviour, uh, they sometimes use a verb that means to go through the thighs. I love how um, literature and imagery are just, they either complement each other or just completely write each other off. Well, they don't quite write each other off, I don't think, uh, but you're right that uh, the literature and the imagery um, have discrete discourses, though those discourses do, as it were, meet in some sorts of ways.
I'm going to say this first because I know our listeners are going to say, what are, you, what are you talking about? But don't worry, it will be explained. The sausage seller and the meat in the pants incident. Let's talk about that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, again, one has to go, I think, uh, back a bit to make sense of this. Um, in two ways. Uh, so the sausage seller is a character in a play by Aristophanes called The Knights. The Knights is a political satire, uh, effectively, and the sausage seller ends up being the populist orator par excellence. Um, that's part of the background to this. The second part of the background is a much repeated term of abuse. Uh, within, well, Aristophanes' plays in particular, um, but more widely than just uh, Athenian comedy. And that term of abuse is um, a term that in Greek is euryproktos and has to be translated as something like wide-arsed. So at various points, Aristophanes has a character accusing another character of being wide-arsed, or at some points accuse the whole audience of being wide-arsed. Um, uh, and there's quite a lot of discussion amongst modern scholars as to what you did in order to end up wide-arsed. Uh, but the answer to that is almost certainly uh, that there's not a single behaviour that leads to that, but actually uh, a variety of behaviours. So one behaviour that might lead you to be wide-arsed is simply anal intercourse. But another behaviour that might lead you to be wide-arsed is engaging in adulterous relations. So if you have sex with another man's wife, one of the popular punishments for that, not a legal punishment, but an extra-legal punishment, uh, is to get hold of the man who's responsible and to stuff a root vegetable um, up his anus. And wow. so this is an alternative way in which you might end up in the condition uh, which I've translated as wide-arsed. So the sausage seller at some point uh, makes reference to an incident in which a piece of meat has been hidden up is wide-arsed. And to the accusations uh, that result from that uh, about uh, his political future. So the assumption is that someone who behaves in the sort of way that might lead them to this accusation might also be somebody who will be very successful in politics. And that's probably just a way of alluding to the fact that uh, stories circulate about politicians and the ways in which they abuse their power in various ways uh, in terms of their sexual behaviour. Whether it's explicitly a reference to them abusing uh, their sexual relations, their homosexual relations, or whether it's uh, about their committing adultery, uh, is left open and indeed doesn't need to be spelled out in order to have the joke. And the joke, in part, uh, comes from leaving it open. I can't get over the moment you said that for committing adultery, they get a root vegetable shoved in their anus. It's very, very painful. I'm assuming. I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to bring up 
so we studied at university we, we did symposia and we, we we spoke about some of the sexually explicit images from from heterosexual to homosexual and in your article comes up my favorite image my absolute favorite favorite image it's the interior of a red cup which is ascribed to the Brigus painter which is found in the Ashmolean Museum and I've actually been there and I've actually seen the cup and it is the moment where there is an older man and a younger man and the younger boy sorry younger boy the younger boy is holding a bag of clams and the older gentleman is putting his penis in between the legs of the boy so my question is is this a common thing to be seen giving gifts uh, absolutely. So I, I talked a bit earlier about one form of uh, very clear homoerotic behaviour consisting of, of, of the up and down gesture of groping the chin and the genitals. Uh, a second form of uh, homosexual behaviour that is shown is behaviour where uh, the boy and the man are in very close quarters uh, and the man is clearly sexually excited and sometimes the man's erect penis points directly at the younger man sometimes as I think um, is the case on this uh, cut by the Brygos painter it actually points vertically uh, so uh, is parallel to the body of, uh, of the young man um, and a third set of imagery uh, has no explicit sexual excitement on any of the partners, uh, but it involves the giving of a love gift. And that's sometimes an animal. Hares were popular love gifts because capturing a hare showed your great prowess. Uh, but birds of various sorts are given as love gifts. Uh, pieces of meat seem in some cases to be given as love gifts. So presumably the thought is there's been a sacrifice and you take the choice cut of meat from the sacrifice and you give it to the person whom you fancy. Uh, so there are a whole variety of, of, of love gifts. Um, and indeed, there are probably more scenes displaying explicit homoerotic attraction that use gifts to do that than there are scenes that show either groping or um, explicit sexual excitement. Is this also found on, on black figure images? Because that obviously shows a red figure image. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, is, is the short answer. We get both the up and down groping gesture and we get courtship scenes in uh, black figure, not so many of them, but we do get courtship scenes in, in black figure. Uh, we tend uh, not to get the scenes of very close intimacy uh, showing uh, explicit sexual excitement. Uh, black figure is actually keener on heterosexual uh, intercourse than it is on these scenes of uh, homoerotic engagement. So you've mentioned previously that these images don't actually show actual, not all of them, some of them do, um, show intercourse, but they don't actually represent real life, do they? I don't think that they do, no. There's always a tendency from scholars to want to believe that what they get on a Greek pot is a snapshot of life. Uh, but uh, it's very clear in most cases that that's not what we're dealing with. Clearly, there are mythological scenes where the characters get names of Achilles or Hector or Priam or whoever it might be, Heracles in particular. Uh, 
and uh, there is no attempt being made there for these images to be documentary in any sense. I've already talked about images with satyrs, and satyrs don't exist. These must be fantasy pictures. Scholars like to think that behind all these fantasies there must be a bit of real life, uh, but it's perfectly plausible, and indeed, uh, I think much more plausible, that what these figures do is patrol men's imagination. They offer images that are suggestive because they go rather beyond the bounds of what would be normally done or what would be proper to be seen doing, um, and they enable people to, uh, as work, enjoy the fantasy that they would behave like that or dress like that, uh, actually in not dissimilar ways to the ways in which images in magazines or fashion magazines, for instance, uh, will often give you a fantasy that you might look like that uh, when in real life uh, nobody looks like that. You never meet people in the street who are dressed like that. So basically, it's the modern version of uh, a Snapchat filter or uh, Photoshop. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, probably even more so in some sense. Um, uh, depends on how much manipulation you're imagining doing in Photoshop. But here, I think there's quite a lot of manipulation going on. I know you're going to say no to this question, but I'm, st I'm still going to answer it anyway. Do you think there are any images that show real-life homosexual relationships or sex in general in this time period? Uh, I, I don't think the answer is a straightforward no. I mean, one of the things we can be absolutely certain is there's plenty of sexual activity in this period. Uh, and uh, there are certainly plenty of images that capture something about relations between men and men or men and women. Um, so, I mean, if you took the images of courtship, for instance, that love gifts were exchanged, there can be no doubt. That love gifts consisted in exotic beasts uh, is pretty dubious. So what you've got is a situation which is a real-life situation, but then that situation being magnified in some sense by the introduction of a, a fantasy element or an exaggerated element. Um, and so I think we, we do get uh, scenes where you can imagine the same thing applying uh, in terms of sexually explicit scenes. So... I said earlier that you only really get explicit heterosexual scenes in the 5th century, in the first half of the 5th century. There is a famous exception to this from the second half, uh, which shows two obviously very young people, young girl and a young man. Um, and... Um, the girl is about to sit upon the lap of the young man who is sexually excited. And they look sort of dreamily into each other's eyes. Now, the particular sexual position uh, seems uh, slightly implausible, but it captures something of what 
it's easy, it's easy to imagine, was a real-life crush, as it were, uh, in which these two young people are completely in love with each other. Um, so often in these scenes, I think you're getting a form of action that is fantasy or implausible, but you are getting an aspect of life that is actually common. Ladies and gentlemen, pottery does not have to be boring. And we have just proven that in this podcast. So thank you. This was brilliant. You need to come back on board and have a chat with us about anything. The choice is yours for, for, for ancient Greek history. So thank you very much. That's very kind. Thank you very much. Join us tomorrow when the host of the Sagas of She podcast will be joining us to champion some women who may have slipped out of living memory. This is what they do on their podcast. They talk about epic matriarchs who really should be remembered. And they've told us about some of their favourites. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.